Father, I thank you for the breath in our lungs. I thank you for the light in the sky. I thank you for the warmth of this room. In many ways, it's manifested. And I thank you for your spirit who indwells us to prevail against all those things, all those voices, all those inclinations that whisper and tempt, seduce. I thank you for this body, for the way you bore it, the way you birthed it and blessed it and allowed it to burgeon. I thank you that it continues to be faithful and generous, and I pray that you would help us in all that we give of our material resources and our time, that we would see it as an act of sacrifice and worship. I praise you for what is before us. I praise you for the hope that you always set before us and do not grow weary of telling us, even when we continue to turn side glances to all manner of other things that compete for our attention. I thank you now that we might lean into what you have said, what you've inspired others to speak, and what you've seen fit to preserve and to use for your own goodness. And now I pray that you would bless the hearing, the reading, and the understanding of what you've had to say in Jesus' name. Amen. So several months ago I found an article um, that someone compiled a list of about 50 different quotes. Don't worry, I won't do them all. Um, 50 different quotes from characters from kids' entertainment. And I read it over, and I thought I would give my kids a quiz. So the first three were pretty easy. They nailed it pretty fast. Like, first of all, let it go, let it go, Elsa. Someday we will let it go, right? Um, There's adventure out there. Yeah, okay, that's Ellie from Up which makes me cry all the time. And then there was, uh, it takes a great deal of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but a great deal more to stand up to your friends, which was easy for my kids. Dumbledore, that's Dumbledore. It's like, yep, that's from Harry Potter. So they nailed all those. That was easy. And they said, all right. Then I looked over the, the quotes again, and I began to notice a little theme to a lot of them. And so I kind of did round two with my kids. I said, all right, who said these but then at the end, and here's like the, the, you know, the power round, like, tell me what's a common idea you hear in a lot of these quotes. So you listen carefully and don't get so you know, bound up about who said it as what's being said. Ready? Here's, here was the first one I said. Um, life doesn't give us purpose. We give life purpose. That's from uh, DC Marvel, The Flash. I know. What? And then there's this one. Our fate lives within us. You only have to be brave enough to see it. That's Merida from Brave, right? And then um, this one. Sometimes we have to go deep inside ourselves to solve our problems. And that's from Patrick Starr from Spongebob. (laughs) It's very unfortunate right there. And then this one, which I didn't remember ever hearing. You must not let anyone define your limits because of where you come from. Your only limit is your soul. That's Chef G from Ratatouille, another wonderful Pixar film. Um, But finally, this one, which I think kind of encapsulates the theme that I was beginning to hear in a lot of these quotes from kids' stories. It's, It's this one. Fairy tales can come true, 
you got to make them happen. It all depends on you. That's Tiana from Princess and the Frog. See, Disney is everywhere. And so I gave them that quiz, and so they were pretty good about guessing who said what. And then I said, what is the theme you're hearing? And they said, it sounds like life is really a lot about on you. It's kind of on your shoulders. And I said, yes, that's what it's saying. Like if you want real life, it's really, it's all dependent upon what you can kind of dig down deep and find within you. All goodness and life and true life is found about what's inside of you. And because, you know, a lot of this language sort of speaks to mystery and like even Chef G talks about your only limit is what's in your soul. It's kind of a a version of spirituality that's kind of running as a thread through a lot of these stories that our kids, and let's just be honest, I'm listening to it too. I enjoy these kids. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer about kids' stories. I listen to them. I relish them. I enjoy them. I see them over again. But that's the line. You want life? It's all about what's inside of you. And we shouldn't really be surprised by that version of spirituality on offer. Because the irony of Western civilization is that with the rise of secularity, of people you know, distancing themselves from previous versions of organized religion or theology, the truth of the matter is even though secularity has gone up, the interest in spirituality, man, just go to Malaprops in Asheville. Spirituality is not in the least bit abating. It's only exploding. And of all people, for me to confirm that to you, here is a a football announcer on the BBC who said this. I've always liked going into bookshops. When I was a young man, the mind, body, and spirit section was tiny. But now it's a whole wall in some shops. That's what it's all about. We all want the same thing. Of course we do. We all want life. We all want goodness. And so it makes sense that the stories that kindle our imagination are all out there saying this. Yes, yes, we want life. You've just got to find what's deep inside of you, and then you'll have it. Look, um, for the last four weeks, I've either been the recipient of caregiving or the giver of caregiving. And there's one thing I'm sure of. The solution to all my problems is not going to be inside of me. It ain't there. If anything, I saw the problem in even sharper relief. This world, these stories, not just kids' stories, but adult stories are all saying one thing. You want life, you better find it inside. And along comes Jesus and he says, "Mm, how about no? I mean, notwithstanding the goodness of understanding yourself. Look, John Calvin, in the very first chapter of his institute, says, you know where the way to wisdom is? understanding yourself and understanding God. So there's everything fine with understanding what happened to you in the fourth grade or how your mom treated you. That's okay. It's just not as crucial as you think. Along comes Jesus and says, I believe that there is something beautiful in you. Yes, to be sure. But what is more important is not what's inside of you, but who. And by that, we allude to what you've heard alluded to throughout this service already, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. Two weeks ago, we had great aspirations to plunge into one chapter for the next six or seven weeks of this year, and so we shall, and so we continue this day, and that is to look at one chapter, Romans 8. And we've called this series an elevator pitch because we think Romans 8, if you will, 
is Paul's elevator pitch to the world with respect to the good news of Jesus. The short, pithy, persuasive case for why you might want to lean in and even believe. And two weeks ago when we began, we felt like Paul began that elevator pitch by saying this. You want freedom? The freedom you have in Jesus is greater than any other freedom you might find. What he might continue in his elevator pitch this day is to say this. What's inside of you is not nearly as important as who is. And in these next eight verses we're going to look at, Paul's going to put up some pretty stark contrasts. Two different ways of thinking. Two different ways of living. And you might think of that stark contrast as two different kinds of storylines. Different beginnings, different aspirations, different animating spirit, different goals. And though they may demonstrate certain similarities from time to time, they couldn't be more starkly different. To believe in Jesus is to be written into a different story. To have his spirit indwelling you is to be written in a different story. And so we want to consider how that story is different from four angles and how it means an end to four things. To be written into a different story is to be end to four things. And I worked really hard for these, self, these things to line up and to rhyme. Ready? It's an end to futility. It's an end to hostility. It's an end to mortality. And it's an end to mere morality. In this new story, it means the end of futility, hostility, mortality, and mere morality. What is the new story of? Oh, well, sit in your seats. Let's find out. We're in Romans chapter 8. We'll start in verse 5. If you're able to stand, let's do that. Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You who ever are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. Well, this is the stark word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were with us last spring, we went at length through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And you may remember that towards the end of that sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, Jesus says one of those kind of pointed, loving things that only Jesus can say. He says, if you who are evil, nice, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's how Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 7. That's how Matthew remembers that time that Jesus said those words. In Luke's version, in Luke's remembrance of another time when Jesus spoke to these same themes, it's almost the same words but with a twist. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That among the gifts God gives, his Holy Spirit is one of those gifts. It's a package deal. Okay, but then how is the Holy Spirit a gift? In John's Gospel, Jesus begins to outline kind of a profile of the Spirit. I wish we had a ton of time to kind of sink our feet deeply into that profile. But it comes down to what he says in John 14. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And then I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept Because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. Jesus is profiling this Holy Spirit whom we, uh, through much um, reflection, contemplation, prayer, and tradition, have uh, assigned the name the third person of the Trinity. Jesus is out to tell us that the Holy Spirit is not an idea. He's not a mindset. He's not a vibe. He's a person. He's a person who indwells, who is a a presence, who is a mysterious kind of influence, but who's an essential presence to those who have put their faith in who Christ is. And why then do we consider the Spirit essential as a presence to us? Why... Does the Spirit become part of us if we are written into this new story of whom Jesus is the author in his blood? It is, first of all, because in written into that story, it means, first of all, the end of a certain futility and the beginning of flourishing. And by end of futility, by what it means to live under him, it means this. Look, to live according to the Spirit is to have the Spirit as an influence in us. To be a presence that, that animates us, that does one primary thing, as we said towards the end of two weeks ago's sermon. To do one thing. To bring the utmost attention to the love and mercy of Jesus. And for that to be persuasive unto us in ways that we cannot fathom or measure. But what is it, therefore, to live in the flesh? What does it mean to live according to the flesh? And, and first of all, we should clarify, as we have before, to live according to the flesh, what sounds like what Paul is saying is a bad thing, it is not saying that God has something against skin or bone or blood. Jesus was skin and bone and blood. He seems to be okay with flesh in skin and body terms. And he also doesn't have a problem with, like, spaghetti or food or surfing Material things. He seems to be fine with that. He made the world and everything in it that we might enjoy it unto his glory. So it's not something against skin and bone. It's not something against matter. To live according to the flesh is to walk in futility. It's to have a mindset that is shaped primarily by one thing. Only that which you can see, feel, hear, and taste. It is to have a horizon that is no higher than what you can see in the sky. It is to have a bounded way of enjoying and understanding and interpreting the whole world. This is as good as it gets. That's the nature of living according to the flesh. And if I might 
pull in a name that would be the least likely voice to give uh, sort of a, uh, an illustration of what that means. Let me, let me quote to you an economist, John Maynard Keynes. You want to know what it means to live according to the flesh in one sense? Let me let you listen to how he ordered his life. We repudiated entirely customary morals, conventional and traditional wisdom. We recognized no moral obligation on us, no inner sanction to conform or to obey. Before heaven, we claim to be our own judge in our own case. That's a little sense of what it means to live according to the flesh. You are your own light. You are your own wisdom. You are your own standard. You are your own animation. You are your own judge. That's it. That's as far as you see. That's as far as you want to see. To live according to the flesh is to live with that bounded set and to live with nothing else admitted from nowhere else. No other evidence that might offer something to the contrary. Your mindset is defined and shaped by what is under the sun. Which therefore proceeds into a second sense of what it leads to live according to the flesh. It means by living, therefore, by your own instincts to find your own good. And that, Paul says, rather starkly and unambiguously, is a path toward death. Gee, Paul, can't you nuance that a bit? The proverbialist says in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the way it leads to death. There is a form of life that looks like life, but then it leads to death because anything that we follow that might lead to death, why do we do that? Because it looks like life on the front end. And anything that therefore is on a trajectory toward death is an exercise in futility. Now, why do I pick that word futility to characterize what it means to follow in this way in which you see your own instincts and your own inclinations as the final arbiter in your world. Let me borrow um, a a sentence from um, that same author I quoted a couple weeks ago, James Smith, who's been musing on St. Augustine. And here he is. If I could characterize what it means to live according to the flesh, it's to live without further orientation or goals, in which case my choice is just another means by which I'm trying to look for satisfaction Insofar as I keep choosing to try to find satisfaction in finite, created things, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things and more dependent on those things. I keep choosing things with diminishing returns, and when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I forfeit my ability to choose. The thing has me now. You think this world is as good as it gets, and then you've got to get as much as good as you can before you're done? If you think your light, your way, your wisdom, your inclinations, your skills, your aptitudes, your network is it, then you will continue to choose things and invest your heart in things that in time will not pay off. It is to borrow a phrase from another preacher who said it is like warming yourself at a fire that is soon about to go out. It is an attempt to be free, like Jamie Smith puts it, but all ultimately leads to, to sign you up for kind of a slavery. It's a desire that is as easily warped as wa- untreated water and wood. Because all those desires have one goal. 
to make, your feel, make yourself feel like you're okay, that you will have done enough, and that whatever authority you have, whether it has a name or not, you will have satisfied it. That's your objective, living according to the flesh. With all uh, due respect to the man who's won many championships and begins to make and still makes everybody wonder, how, how does he do it? Uh, Tom Brady, after his walk of shame two weeks ago when he loses to Tennessee and talks about his future, he said this, I know I still have more to prove. Like what? Like I don't, you want to keep playing the football game? That's great. That's fine. I, I don't, no harm, no foul. I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm just kind of asking myself, like, what do you still have to prove? <laughs> What's left to do? Like, are you still waiting for the, you know, the Jimmy Johnson tears after you get inducted to the Hall of Fame and then everything will be okay? How will you know when you're done? How will you know when you've proved that? Which is just a question I come back at myself. In how many ways am I exerting myself in a way that's out to prove something? I just don't know it. That's futility. It's not flourishing. It's just full of fear. In the form of great striving. What is it therefore to live inside the Spirit? To live according to the Spirit? It is to live, Paul says, with life and peace. And by that he means this. When it comes to life, it means, like he said in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever regret about your past, whatever exasperation you have about your present, whatever uncertainty about your heart and its capacity for sin in the future, it's atoned for. You are estranged, you are estranged no longer because of what he did. You're reconciled, there's life. And when it comes to peace, he's not so much talking about this kind of inner peace, although that is downstream of it. He's talking about a new status that we have with God because of what Jesus has done. And that new status means you no longer have anything to perform and nothing to prove. It doesn't mean we don't aspire. It doesn't mean we don't strive. It doesn't mean we don't have goals. It doesn't mean we don't find satisfaction in some of our achievements. It just doesn't become the index of your worth to God. It doesn't become the measure of who you are unto yourself, unto others, or to Him. It's His work that makes you His. And then you just work for the sake of what the work deserves, not to make you into something that you can never aspire to, never reach. Then you flourish. That's what it means to live according to the Spirit. It is being written out of a story that leads to futility into a story that leads to flourishing. It's not a story about what's inside of you. It's a story about who is. It's an end to futility. But it's also an end to hostility. And again, you hear Paul speaking rather starkly about the distinction between those who live according to the flesh and according to the Spirit in verse 7. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, it's stark, but he's saying those who are in the flesh live according to the flesh. They believe that they are qualified to govern their own world, that they're the master of their own fate. It is, again, to bring in John Maynard Keynes again, you are the judge. You are the arbiter. You get to pick 
And if you're your own judge, you not only don't need another standard to which to submit, you're opposed to it. So if we think of the law of God as representing the heart of God and what it means to find life in Him, and upstream of that is this estrangement from Him that leads us to not have an interest in submitting to His world, then to be estranged from God is to be estranged not only from Him, but it is to have no desire whatever to listen or to please Him. You don't, you're not out to please anybody you don't respect. In this life, you are confronted with the opportunity to follow. And most of the time, though, when we live according to the flesh, it is to respect only what is in your best interest in that given moment. You know what that the definition is of? To be an infant. What do infants do? Whatever they want to. And in that moment, when they are looking at you, screaming, gritting their few teeth, you can't reason with them and say, now, okay, look here, chunky monkey. Let's consider the cost-benefit analysis of this behavior. Let us imagine what habit and pattern you are setting for yourself and how that might have an effect on your ability to go to college. And you certainly cannot reason with an infant in that moment and say, Honey, let us consider the holiness of God. Now take the fork out of your sister's eye. You, it's, that's the definition of infancy. And when it comes to maturing, you and I, we may or may not grow out of that inclination, or we may just get really specialized in living according to that sensibility, but just concealing it in some really fiendish ways. To live according to the flesh is to believe that God is a roadblock to joy. And there is no interest in pleasing him, because you don't want to. There's no interest in that because you have no respect. Now, when it comes to people-pleasing, which is a phrase that perhaps many of us are familiar with, and we all live on that spectrum, and some of us are in a deeper side of the spectrum than others. I I find myself in that category. When it comes to people-pleasing, it's not so much the pleasing of people that's the problem. That's not the pathology. The pathology of people-pleasing is the reasons why you want to do so and the means by which you try. There is pleasure to be found in people-pleasing. Why else would we do it? But the problem is not in trying to please people. I, I, can, I can derive pleasure from doing that. I don't love in order to be loved, but I can certainly take delight in knowing that they are receiving pleasure from what I have sought for their good. And there's something good in that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the same way with God. When Paul says in another letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Because God's worthy of that but also because there's pleasure in that. And so what changes from a life of hostility unto God when you're written into that new story is that your story changes from one of hostility to one of pleasure. Pleasure because you take pleasure in what he asks. And by his spirit you are affirmed and confirmed in what he has done. The deepest pleasure though that we derive when it comes to being changed into a new story is the pleasure of knowing that we belong to him. That we're not simply a grunt or a minion who's out to simply do his bidding, 
but that we belong and that we are cherished. And therefore, from a, a hostile posture to a belonging posture, everything changes. And do you know why that matters? Do you know why it matters that your story might now reflect the idea of belonging to him? I'll tell you. And I've had to remind myself of this in the last several weeks. On your worst day, when you least resemble the image of God in whose name you were made, when you least resemble the heart of Jesus in whose image you're out to be conformed, on your worst day, you still belong to him no less than on the day when you let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the gospel. That's the different storyline. When you least resemble him, you are no less his. Because you weren't his because you impressed him. You are his because he was impressed with what his son did unto you, unto your good. And that's a different story, and that's a different motivation. And that speaks to our present experience. But the story has implications not only for our present, but most certainly for our future. Some of you might have caught Ricky Gervais's rather memorable speech at the Golden Globes, which he tried to temper the audience's um, angst when he kind of put it in these terms. Remember, they're just jokes. We're all going to die soon, and there's no sequel. So remember that. Oh, friends, there's the anthem for what it means to live according to the flesh. This is it. Get it while you can. There's no sequel. That is a storyline. And that is a whole different set of motivations. But Paul is saying, if you live according to the Spirit... This is true in verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How may I put this in simplest terms? Let me allow Jesus to chime in. Though ye die, yet shall ye live. This story is an end to mortality and the beginning of an incorruptibility. And I can't fathom that any more than you can. But this story changes. And as he says, if the spirit who is involved in the work of raising Jesus from the dead, if that same spirit dwells in you, then though your body is destined for decay, there is the opening of eyes on the other side of death. N.T. Wright, he kind of put it this way, that I think captures nicely what it means to think in these terms. He said this, We sometimes speak of someone who's been very ill as a shadow of their former self. If Paul was right, a Christian in this present life is a mere shadow of his or her future self. Nice spin, huh? That is the highest article of our faith. That Jesus was risen from the dead. And if it's not true, then we should go home. And Paul knew that. He said, if this is the hope we have in this life only, then we are to be pitied more than all people. 
he got it. He grasped the risk. His feet were both firmly on terra firma. And yet he believed in this bonkers idea. That Jesus rose is the highest article of our faith. But just as crucial, just as high on the hierarchy of beliefs, is why Jesus was risen from the dead and the implications. And Paul speaks very carefully four chapters earlier in Romans chapter 4 about what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. He says, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? For our justification. Not just to prove that God had power over death, although that's a pretty cool idea to believe in. He was raised to declare us righteous in his sight on the basis of what Jesus had done on our behalf alone. We belong. We're forgiven. We have an inheritance. And it's validated by him coming back from the dead and making good on his promise. This story changes. You and I are written into a different story. Not just one from futility to flourishing. Not just one from hostility to belonging. But also from mortality to incorruptibility. And that's a mouthful. And that's enough to think on for the rest of our day. So what's the takeaway? What do you do with any of that? I mean, we could flesh out all of any number of implications from what we've already heard. But where does it go? What does it do? There is not a single uh, command in Romans chapter 8. He doesn't tell us to do anything. Just believe this. But the closest thing to an imperative that he might say in this chapter happens in the very last two verses of this passage. When he talks about to live according to the flesh is death. But if we put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit we'll live. What is the takeaway? This has talked a lot about living and living eternally. But what do we still do with what is troubling in us? What do we still do with the things that we can't quite get over? Leslie Jameson is a woman who struggled with alcoholism for much of her life. But there came a point in the telling of her own story, in facing that, she said this, I needed to believe in something stronger than my willpower. It was not enough to sort of say, I'll just fix myself. And she outlines an idea that is a long pedigree. And St. Augustine himself said this, Our hearts and our thoughts are not in our power Everyone who is humble and genuinely religious recognizes this is entirely true. Who is so happy as one who always ascends in his heart? But without divine assistance, who can make it happen? They're both acknowledging this. The desire to change, whatever that desire comes from, it's not enough You know what Twitter gives you and me? You know what Twitter's one contribution to the conversation about how to change is? It's this phrase. Do better. Do better. Oh, go do a search on Twitter with do better. How many will come up? That's the best this world has got. Do better. That'll work. 
Leslie Jameson, St. Augustine, and our own hearts know we need something more. And to live according to the Spirit is not simply to believe that the Spirit is there whispering on our shoulder, telling us what to do. The Spirit of God is there to deliver us into a last story. One that is not simply mere morality. Morality is a good word. Morality is a biblical word. And morality is fine. It's doing the right instead of the wrong. It's doing good instead of evil. But this story is different. This is not just about complying with certain codes. It's not just about lining up with certain ethics. It's a story of being transferred from morality to worship. I need something more than just a list of items by which I might comply. I need to see one high and lifted up that I might want to follow. And so for all the ways in which Disney might be leading us off the trail to what is a true story, there is a moment which Disney got right. I'm going to show it to you. It's from The Lion King, and it's the story of Simba in the shortest terms that might help us all grasp what does it mean to find our way forward into what is good, true, and beautiful. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope, wrong again. <laughs> He's alive, and I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki, he knows the way. Come on. Don't dodge Hurry up! Hey, whoa, wait, wait. Come on. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. Simba would go his own way and Hakuma Matata live for no worries and realize that was a refusal of reality, a refusal to live into the identity that he'd been given. Simba is the one who is reminded of who is the one from whom he comes. He, remind, he is reminded of who is in him. He's the child of a king. It is not what's in him, but who's in him. This story is not a story about a morality play. It's about worship. It's about reveling in who you belong to that leads you to walk in his way. This is the story that you've been written into. And it is a story in which the Spirit reminds you of, even when you are cynical, even when you're full of rage, even when you're full of self-pity, even when you're full of resentment. 
It is the Spirit of God who reminds you, who is this Jesus and what has he done? And rather than just seeing your life as one big test, it is a life in which you might worship and from that worship find your way. This is the way. This is your worship. And this is why we come to this table. We come to this table to be reminded, not simply that it would be a symbol of what he has done unto us, though it is that. It is more. It is conveying something to us that I can barely explain. But it is to remind us that we are in a different story and that we have an assistance. And in that assistance, there is forgiveness and hope and mercy and justice and warning and love. Deep, deep love.